This morning, we are uh, approaching in this text something that we don't talk about always in the Christian life. Sometimes we don't talk about it because it makes us feel like we're doing the Christian life wrong. Something that feels like it shouldn't be there, but often is there in our lives. And so we guard it and we don't tell others about it. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And, and that is that you can, you can have Jesus Christ. You can be a, a genuine Christian. Jesus is yours as an all-satisfying treasure. And you can have the Spirit of God within you. And you can have the good guidance of the Word of God for your whole life and a family in the church. And still go through life unsatisfied. Now that doesn't feel right. It almost feels like I shouldn't say that. If Jesus is all-satisfying, how can I be still going through the Christian life not fully satisfied, not fully consoled? Uh, Some of us this morning woke up again to a marriage that still isn't perfect and right and how it should be. And others of us woke up this morning again alone because it felt like God would have given me somebody by now or because the Lord took him away, and I didn't want him to, but he did, or for any other reason, things didn't work out. With all of this trial and difficulty and so many tragedies for some of us to look back to, and it does hit the heart, and it is real, and so we look up to God and we say, I have everything in you, and yet I'm sad. What's going on? I have everything in you, and yet I'm not satisfied. What is going on? And this morning, what's going to happen is we're going to meet two characters in the Scriptures who feel essentially the same way. These are people full of the Spirit of God, righteous and devout, but unconsoled. And so what's going to happen is we'll find their permission to be sad in the Christian life, and we'll see them find everlasting joy and see where it is that all of our sorrows will one day melt away and where we will find everlasting joy and happiness. Let's read together Luke chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 21, and we will read on through verse 38. At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The words of the Lord. Well, through Simeon and Anna, the Spirit makes a a separation between those who are longing for the coming of Jesus Christ and those who oppose Jesus Christ, encouraging those who are longing for Him with dear hope and warning those who oppose Him to turn and repent, come back to Him. Let's walk through the story here. Uh, As this child was born, as Jesus was born, there were three things that Mary and Joseph needed to do. On the eighth day, they were to circumcise the child. Growing up under the law, still in the old covenant, they would circumcise the child, which taught that Israel was set apart and had received special, wonderful promises that if if he were to grow up and take a wife, that the boy and his wife would one day enjoy together. Great fertility and all sorts of wonderful promises there. They taught that they were set apart through that circumcision. And, And then they went to the temple after a set time, a month or so later, and they offered two offerings, one for the mother, which taught after the ugly and, if we're honest, just downright gross process of childbirth, taught the mother, you are clean. God cleanses his people. Go in peace. And another offering for the son that taught that all of our children belong to the Lord. Mary and Joseph were devout Israelites, and so they went and performed all of these things. And Luke hints through this that these are righteous and devout people. They are not saying with entitlement, well, our son is the Messiah, so we don't have to do all of this stuff. No, they go and they offer, poor as they are, they offer what they can to the Lord. So we see a hint at Mary and Joseph's devotion and their love for the Lord there. That's the setup. They're in the temple offering those two offerings And then things start to get interesting. Uh, A strange man comes, and and his name is is Simeon. And we learn a few things about him in verse 25. We see that he is righteous and devout, which means he was a really righteous man. And we see that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so, pretty easy to tell early on, good guy or bad guy good guy, right? Righteous and devout, and the Spirit of God's upon him. But Simeon is unconsoled. It says right there, he is, he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He and all Israel with him are unconsoled, unsatisfied, unhappy. So here's a righteous, devout man full of the Spirit of God, and yet unsatisfied, unconsoled. So right there, just just on the fact that this man exists, 
that can kind of break down our grid, some of us here in, in, in American Christianity, where we often sense a pressure that if Jesus is indeed all-satisfying, he is all-satisfying, and if I have him, then no trouble in the world here ought to bother me. I ought to be consoled, fully comforted. I have the comfort of the Spirit. I would have no reason to ever be sad. This is a pressure we place on ourselves. And if your version of the Christian life is an Instagram-worthy, don't-you-wish-you-had-my-life type of life, Simeon's very existence just throws a rock in that glass house, and the whole thing comes down. Well, if that were true, there would be no room for a man like this, righteous and devout, full of the Spirit of God, and yet unconsoled, waiting for consolation. That already ought to be a comfort for some of you because we sense this tension sometimes, right? If I am unconsoled, if I am unhappy, if I'm looking at life and whether good or bad saying that was it, that's all there is, I'm longing for more, that does not mean that you're doing life wrong necessarily. It does not mean that you're doing the Christian life wrong necessarily. Yes, God gives contentment, He gives comfort, and yet an ache lives on inside us, a sense that the world still isn't right and our lives didn't go like they should have gone. Now, we'll talk in a bit how this does not excuse bitterness, it doesn't excuse a jaded anger toward God or toward the church, but that tension lingers on in our hearts, and we even get permission from a man like this to feel that lack of consolation and be waiting for the consolation of God's people. I have better news than that. Not just permission to be sad in this life, but but the really good news is Simeon does find that consolation. He does find that happiness. Let's look and see how he does that. Starting in verse 26, it had been revealed to him, God had told him, that he wasn't going to die before he saw the Christ come. So he would see God's Messiah come. He'd see the chosen one. The one's going to save Israel and everyone. He's going to see this one come, and he just keeps going year after year, not seeing the one he's longing for and not dying. And then another year goes by, and he celebrates another birthday. And, well, he hasn't come yet. I haven't seen him yet, and I... I'm still alive, and birthday after birthday, celebrated or perhaps even mourned with a longing and an ache, saying, one day my happiness is going to come, and yet the Lord keeps delaying it. We see in the next verse that the Lord, the Spirit, leads him into the temple, and then what I imagine must have been a very awkward moment for Mary and Joseph, he walks up to Mary and Joseph and takes the baby up into his arms. Sometimes when babies are around, people do strange things, right? If you've got, you got a pregnant belly, people just come up and touch that thing. And you're like, what, what are you doing, right? Like, and sometimes you bring a baby into church and everybody's like, here you go. Like, no permission. I'm just going to take this thing. I don't know if that's what Simeon did, but, but it does feel a little strange. He walks over and one way or another, he takes the child up into his arms. He looks down at the face of Jesus And then he says the beautiful words, blessing God, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. 
So where does Simeon finally find this consolation that he and all of the people of God are longing for? It's when he doesn't just believe in the salvation that is coming, but he sees the face of Jesus Christ. This is just what we would expect from Luke, isn't it? Luke has spent already uh, all of his words making us feel the same way, longing and longing for this child to come and then delight when he finally comes. You can remember during Advent when we were walking through those Advent stories and first an angel appears to Zechariah and, ooh, great anticipation because a great baby is going to be born. And then the angel appears to Mary and, wow, an even greater baby is going to be born. And we just feel it coming. The two mothers meet and wonderful things happen. And then the first child is born. But the whole way the story is told just makes you anticipate the second child being born. And then finally, Jesus is born. And there's just a sense of Ah, he's come. He's here, right? We built a whole Advent season around that. And Luke has made us long for his coming, and he satisfied that with the coming of Jesus. And so it makes sense that now he would introduce us to a character who has been feeling the same way that Luke has made us feel the whole time, a longing to see this child come and a delight that Jesus has finally come. He does, as a sub-point mention, that this joy and delight is available to people of every nation. You see that in verse 31, in the presence of all peoples. That means that no matter what nation or tribe you're from, it's, it's for you. And that is said differently in verse 32, revelation to both the Gentiles and the people of Israel. That's the nations outside of Israel and within Israel. So this delight and happiness is available to everyone. And so we can, we can pause there and arrive at the first half of Luke's message. It's a two-sided message today. And the first point I want to make from it is that when we finally see Jesus, those who long for him will be filled with delight. Luke has made us feel that in the way he's told the story. And now he's showing us what it looks like to long and wait for consolation before the face of Jesus and then to finally receive it. The idea is that this Jesus is coming back. And his first coming, it did many things. One of them was it previewed for us what's going to happen when he comes for good. Well, here is one glimpse of what will happen when he comes for good. The people who have been longing and waiting for him unconsoled will find their consolation and even erupt with delight before his face when they finally see him. That means that tension in your life, that, that sense of, okay, this is good what I have in Christ, but this can't be it. That sense of, okay, my life still has not gone the way it was supposed to go, and it's left me disappointed. Friend, if you, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you're longing for him and he is yours, every bit of that tension will melt away in your heart when you finally see the face of Jesus. Not only will the tension melt away, but you will be able to say along with Simeon, Lord, now you have given your servant peace. Because now my eyes have seen your salvation. This is a big theme in the Bible. It happens many times. God makes promises. They're long in coming. And then when they do come, 
God's people are filled with delight. The first place I can think of is we saw this together in the book of Genesis when Isaac is finally born. Some of you remember we were out there in the field. It was during COVID time. And we just waited and waited, walked through all those stories. And finally, the Lord had promised Abraham and Sarah they would have a child and many descendants through this child. And finally, Isaac is born, right? Now, in the lead up to that, his mother, Sarah, is a bitter woman. She is in earshot of the Lord, and she hears the Lord say, about this time next year, I will come back, and Sarah will have a son. She overhears that, and she scoffs and laughs at him. (laughs) Yeah, right. And the Lord calls her out, whole story there. Well, about a year later, there she is holding a son in her arms, and she names the boy Laughter. He laughs, right? And she says, God has made laughter for me. Who would have thought, who would have said to Abraham that I would bear him a child in old age, right? So long-awaited promise, and, and that promised one finally comes, and she sees him, and her bitterness turns in to laughter and delight and joy. So long-awaited promise, The one comes, and and what do the people of God do? We're filled with delight. Our hearts are resolved and finally melt before the face of the one who comes. We see this similarly when God promises a kingdom, and and a picture of it is given for us when finally, after a thousand years of waiting, Solomon rises up to the throne and rules in wisdom, and for a while it appears in the fear of God, and everyone is flourishing, and we see God's good, just king on the throne. And it says the people ate and drank and were happy, right? They were just filled with delight. The queen of Sheba even came and visited, and she had it all. She brings her whole retinue with him and, and with her, and just a great queen. She stands before him, and she says, I didn't believe the report that was told to me, but behold, the half of it was not told to me. And she's filled with delight at the sight of God's anointed one there ruling on the throne. And over and over and over, we see long-awaited promises, and when they come, all the people of God are filled with delight, especially when the Lord himself comes, when that promised one comes. So then we see it right here with this man, Simeon, and we'll see it with someone else in a moment. We see this taught as well in the New Testament. We are told that the Christian life is always sorrowful and yet rejoicing, right? Great sorrows in this life where we are waiting on the promises to come true, and yet we're always rejoicing because the Lord is with us and comforting us, and we have such good things to look forward to. So we just hold in tension, pain and joy at the same time. And it seems weird, it feels weird, but that is just what we do. Paul writes to the Thessalonians who are grieving that their loved ones in the church have died. And they thought, we thought the Lord would come back and and nobody would die, but people died. And what do we do? And he says, well, one day the Lord will come back. And when he does, those you have lost in the Lord will rise from their graves. And then, then we will go up and meet the Lord in the air and we'll be with him forever. He says, comfort one another with those words. So, They're in grief, and he's saying one day that grief is going to be resolved when the face of Jesus appears and we see him and we'll always be with him. That's why he tells them to grieve, but not as those who have no hope, because we have hope. 
So there's a picture of the Christian life then, living, longing for consolation at the coming of Jesus. This must be really important to Luke because the next thing he does is introduce another character who is exactly the same way. Let's skip to verse 36. We're going to see another character there. This woman is a prophetess, and she is named Anna. And what we learn about her is that she's had a rather tragic life. She married when she was young. Her husband died around their seventh anniversary. And since then, either for 84 years or up until she was age 84, we can't tell from the Greek, uh, she's lived a long time as a widow alone, waiting. So she spends those years going to the temple all the time, fasting, praying, worshiping. And so here she is, an unfulfilled, unsatisfied woman, taking that longing, taking that hurt to worship, to prayer, to fasting, because she's longing for the Lord. She knows, who's it is. she knows who it is that she's longing for and that she is waiting for. And it says uh, in verse 38, she comes up at that very hour and she sees what's going on. He's here. And all of that waiting turns to thanksgiving. She begins to thank God and bless God. And she goes out and she tells him to everyone else who is waiting for the consolation and redemption of Jerusalem. So now we learn it's not just Simeon, and it's not just Simeon and Anna, but there were all kinds of people who were longing and were waiting. And so here's our picture of the faithful remnant. Who were the faithful ones in Israel in those days? The ones that were longing and waiting for their consolation at the coming of the Lord's chosen one. Now the Lord is here. And so she finds joy, and Simeon finds joy, and she goes to spread the news to so many people. I hope that that helps you understand the Christian life. I hope it makes sense out of the simultaneous pain and regret and joy that you have. And, and sometimes we wonder, how can I feel both these things at the same time? How, how, one kind of overwhelms the other at different points, and they go back and forth. Why am I both sorrowful and rejoicing? Well, because the Scriptures describe the Christian life as one of, of waiting. You who wait on the Lord, it says, will renew their strength. And the Psalms say, I waited patiently for the Lord. And there's our picture of what it means to follow him. It makes sense, too, because, well, you think back to the day you came to the Lord, if you're a believer. Either you were reading about him in the scriptures or someone was proclaiming him to you, probably like for about 99% of people, and you saw his beauty one way or another. You saw that he was worth following. He was worth putting your trust in. And so you just looked to him and said, okay, Jesus, I see you in your beauty. I, I, in my heart, I understand how good you are. I receive you. I know you offer yourself to anyone who will receive you, and so I trust you. I receive you. And then it's like, okay, where is he? All right. You just received the great treasure of your heart, and he's, you're still sitting there by yourself in the pew, or maybe it's just you and a pastor talking. And so it would make sense that there would be a longing and an ache in your heart for the rest of your life. You have given your heart to Jesus Christ 
What do you long for more than anything in the world? Jesus Christ. Who is the greatest and most supreme treasure of our hearts? And who is it that's all satisfying? It's Jesus, right? That's what we come to when we come to faith, we come to Him. And it would make sense that you aren't satisfied because you haven't seen Him yet. So, it's not wrong to say, I have Jesus in my heart and I'm not yet satisfied. Because when you see Him, then you'll be satisfied. We sing of this, right? Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight. The clouds are rolled back as a scroll. The trump resounds and who descends? The Lord descends. Even so, that as well with my soul. So, Jesus is all satisfying. And you do have him in your heart. And And that means you have more than you used to have but you don't have it all yet. Uh, To parse that out, to parse the theology there, what's going on is you receive Jesus and his spirit begins to indwell you, the spirit of Christ. Lord breathes on his disciples and says, receive my spirit. And he says to them later, uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so if you are a Christian, you have the spirit of Christ living in you, comforting you, encouraging you, guiding you, helping you to read and understand the scriptures. And that same spirit rests upon you to empower you for gospel ministry and proclamation, giving you spiritual gifts and supernatural abilities you didn't have before. That's why I can get up here and preach to you. I was nobody's public speaker before I came to the Lord, but he gifts people. He does that by the power of his spirit. And when we gather here, you have his spirit with us. So he is with you, within you, and upon you right now if you're in him. But all of that is in the spirit. And the book of Ephesians says that's a down payment, being sealed with the Spirit like that, is a down payment on a future inheritance. Some of you took out a mortgage and you made a down payment. And you would say two things about that down payment. You would say, mercy, that was big, right? That was a lot of money and it hurt, right? That's the first thing you'd say about it. And the other thing you'd say about it is the loan's not paid off, right? The down payment doesn't pay off the loan. It's just a promise that says, yes, I do intend to fulfill this whole thing. The Lord has given you, Christians, an inheritance of himself. He he will return. He will live in the flesh with us forever. And your great joy, it says, whom have I in heaven but you, right? Like he is your inheritance. And you will one day be able to touch his hand and you'll see how long his beard is and you'll be able to give him a hug. You'll have him in the flesh with you forever one day. But you don't have that yet. What you have now is a down payment on the future inheritance. That's the spirit of Christ comforting you, coming alongside you, equipping you, empowering you. So you can say at the same time, Man, the Christian life's a blessed thing, isn't it? I have so much more than I used to have. And my heart aches. This isn't my home. This isn't how it's supposed to be. This is how we live like Simeon and Anna in a fallen world. Okay, that's the first half of the message. I do have a second half, but it's much shorter. Before I go into a shorter second part, I want to just apply that to a few things in our lives. I know several of us, many people in this kind of post-COVID age wrestle with bitterness, and so we'll talk about bitterness. Uh, 
we'll apply it to something that many in the room are wrestling with, which, which is dark depression, waves of depression that come. And then, then we'll apply it to some of us have a hard time connecting with the darkness because life is good. And so how do, you, how do you live like Simeon and Anna when life is good? You're really enjoying stuff. Let's apply it to, to bitterness first. We can see here in Simeon and Anna why bitterness is so wrong. Because things don't work out how they're supposed to. And there are things you can look back on in your life and you can say, that happened and I'm not happy. And, and, and what bitterness does is it, is it holds on to the hurt. And if you let it take root and it starts to consume you, it's like, I don't even have a sense of purpose. I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I weren't still clinging to the hurt from that thing because that thing happened and it still bothers me. Now, the scripture says, don't let bitterness take root. It will bear bitter fruit if we do that. Now, let go of the hurt. But what does it mean to live faithfully and put bitterness aside? What are we turning to when we turn away from bitterness? We're turning to both the comfort that Jesus gives in time and hope that one day all the tears will be wiped away and all the hurt will be gone. So now we know what we're turning from and what we're turning to. And this is why we sense in Simeon and in Anna, as they live in hope, we don't sense any bitterness in them, do they? They've had hard lives, especially Anna has had a hard life. And yet she's full of worship, she's full of prayer, she's full of fasting. Why? Because she has hope. She knows, the Lord may have taken my husband from me, but our husband is coming, right? The Lord himself will come for us. So this won't solve the riddle completely, but if you're, if you're wrestling to turn from bitterness, don't just turn from it, turn to hope in the Lord coming for you and melting away all of your sorrows. Second thing we might apply it to is for some of us a very serious thing, a sensitive thing when I bring it up. Uh, I know from talking to you, uh, I never realized how prevalent depression is until I became a pastor. And so many people confided in me that they're, they're wrestling with it. If, and if that's you right now sitting in the pews and you've told me that, you need to know like you're one of many, many people in this church who have said that and, and who are fighting that with you. So if you've never fought the darkness of depression, you know many of your brothers and sisters in the room have. And if you have, you need to know you're not the only one. Many of your brothers and sisters with you right now have. And, and if I understand that state right, uh, the way a lot of you describe it is that you know that unless the Lord works a miracle, those, either those waves of darkness are going to come and go for the rest of your life, or it's just going to stay there for the rest of your life. Barring a miracle, which God may do, that, that's what you're expecting. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm going to have to deal with it. It's going to come again. What does it look like to bear that in a faithful way before the Lord? Well, I've never been through it myself. Many of you have described it to me. And if I understand it rightly, basically your body and your feelings are just screaming, despairing lies at you. It, it feels like there's no point to living. And it, it feels like you have no worth. And, and it feels like there's no reason to get up and nothing you could ever do matters and all is a waste. 
And in that moment, we either choose faith or we choose doubt. Faith is steadfast, and it says, okay, I feel this. This feels true, but I know what the Word says, and and I believe the Word against hope. And doubt is not like that. Doubt, James says, just gets tossed like the waves toss a a beach ball in the sea, right? Your feelings toss you this way, and so I guess I believe this is true. And then something happens you didn't expect, and it tosses you this way. No, I guess I believe that's what's true. And whatever your circumstances and your feelings are tossing you to feel, you you just believe that. That's doubt, James says. Faith is steadfast. It says, I know what I feel, but feelings, y'all are wrong. Here's, here's what the Word says. Here's what I know to be true. And the truth that Simeon and Anna can show us that in the darkest hour we have to cling to is I may not be consoled right now. There may be darkness all upon me. But one day, hoping against hope, one day I will be filled with delight. One day I'm going to erupt in joy and happiness, no matter what I feel right now. And why is that? Because one day I'm going to see the face of Jesus Christ, and he's going to fix my heart, and he's going to fix my body, and everything's going to operate the way that it is supposed to. And I'm going to burst with the laughter of Sarah and the peace of Simeon all at once. Now, a steadfast hope and clinging to that future, that's not going to make depression go away, but it is day in and day out how you handle it. It's day in and day out how you walk faithfully through it, knowing I, be- I feel this, but I believe what the Lord says. That is why the Psalms... Uh, Psalm 42 and 43, repeat three times like a chorus. Uh, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What that psalmist is doing is he's, he's preaching at his own feelings, right? My soul, why are you downcast, right? He's not saying I'm not downcast. He's saying I am, and soul, why are you like that? Hope And God, I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. So if you're fighting that, if a wave comes next month or next year, remember Simeon and Anna, remember Psalm 42 and 43, and let the Lord work in your heart through those to keep you steadfast through that wave. There's how it would apply to what for some of you is the darkest moments of your life. Okay, now let me change the tenor. Some of you didn't connect with that at all because... Life is really good right now, right? We go through good seasons and bad seasons. What does it look like to live with the hope that you'll one day be consoled like Simeon and Anna when life is good and almost doesn't feel like you need to be consoled, right? Yeah. Some of you have worked in, in colleges, in college, at a major that was lucrative. You didn't major in liberal arts like I did, but you majored in something that makes money. Good for you. And then you worked for a few years in a career, and now you're like, man, I'm making good money, and this is kind of nice. And others of you worked for a whole career and did all the work of raising kids, and now you can afford a camper and you have grandkids. Like, 
That's pretty nice, right? And you're walking around, you're saying life is good. Uh, Jerry Mann's not here right now, so I'll quote him. He says all the time, if I'd known grandkids were so good, I would have had them first, right? Like, it's just joyful sometimes. You're going through good seasons when life is good. How, when you're filled with good things, how do you then wait on Jesus and have consolation in the fact that he's coming when it already feels pretty good? Well, the key then in the good years and the life is good years, if you get them, is to remember that all those things aren't going to give you consolation, right? There's still a hole in your heart. You're made for good things in the world, yes, but more than that, for satisfaction before the glory of Jesus. And that means that the camper or the boat or the guest house or whatever it is that you can afford now, it'll make you, you know, a little happier probably if it works out, but it won't make you happy, right? It's the difference between happier and happy. It won't make you satisfied. And the joy of the grandkids as they grow up, it will make you happier, but not happy, right? And so you have to go into those years knowing God has given me good things, but they won't satisfy my soul. Then you're going in without the temptation to live for yourself and just gobble up all of those things, but you know my heart still aches because I don't have Jesus before me yet. And one day, I'll be happier than I am in these things. That can free you from the temptation to live only for yourself in good years or from the temptation to just gobble up because nothing ever satisfies and take it all over and over again. So living like Simeon and Anna in good years means thanking God for good blessings but knowing that none of them are going to satisfy you. You will only be fully and finally happy when you see the face of Jesus. There's the first half. When we finally see Jesus, those who long for him will be filled with delight. I'll spend a lot less time on the second half. Because there's a dark half to this message too. Simeon blesses Mary and Joseph. After he gives his praise to God, he looks to Mary and Joseph. And second half of verse 34, look what he says. The, the soundtrack changes here. The lighting gets darker here. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own heart also, so that the thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. Man, it's like we went from Christmas to Halloween, like in one story, like, man, it got dark there. What's going on? Well, a number of things are, are happening there. He's recapping what Zechariah, Mary, and others have said about Jesus. When he comes, he'll lift up the lowly and he'll topple the proud. It's been a consistent message, and Simeon's calling back to that and saying, yes, this child is appointed for the rising of many and for the fall of many, right? Things are going to get turned over by this boy. And then he says that Jesus is a sign that is opposed. What could that mean? Well, a few other people are called signs, and, and they're all preachers. Uh, Jesus calls Jonah a sign to the people of Nineveh. Uh, so Jonah going to Nineveh, preaching to them judgment and calling them to repentance is a sign that God loves them and wants them to come back. God wants to save them, right? So God's sending a preacher to them, signaled to them that God wants to save them. And that sign was received. The people came, right? Uh, elsewhere, Isaiah says that he and his children are a sign to Israel. So them rising up and 
calling out Israel's sins and calling them back, God sending them, Isaiah and the prophets that worked under him, signaled to the people of Israel, God wants to save us. He's sending us a preacher to call us back. But that sign, he says, was opposed and rejected. People of Israel didn't receive Isaiah's preaching. Jesus, likewise, is a sign. Him coming, Him declaring to them that they must repent and they must come back. He is more than a preacher, but He was a preacher, and His message was turned. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A sign that God wants to save the people. And as a sign, as a preacher, was Jesus received or opposed? Simeon says here, it's appointed. He's, he's going to be opposed. Religious powers of the day, the the people that you would expect to receive him, they're going to oppose him. And that is going to reveal the thoughts of many hearts. There were people walking around the temple right then looking really righteous. Maybe Mary Joseph looked around. Oh, man, look at that scribe over there. He really looks righteous. Look at that Pharisee. Man, his robe is fancy. He looks righteous. But... When Jesus grows up and preaches, their hearts are going to be revealed. Their hatred for God and his lordship will be revealed when they oppose Jesus and his message. So the thoughts of many hearts and the false religion of many will be revealed. And that will go so tragically that Mary will have a sword driven through her own soul while she watches her firstborn son betrayed and mocked and stripped and shamed and tortured and put up on a cross to die. So things got dark there. Yeah. And this is going to be difficult, he says. What we draw from that is the other side of the message. If the first part was the head side, here's the tail side. When Jesus comes, those who oppose him will have their hearts revealed and will be toppled. He says, many will rise, many will fall, and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. We'll see that happen later in Luke. Jesus will heal someone on the Sabbath, and the leaders will be angry that he healed somebody. Boy, it didn't get much more wicked than that. Angry that he healed somebody. Why? Because the issue wasn't the Sabbath. The issue is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and they don't like that. And and on and on, this will happen until their whole system is toppled and their hearts are exposed when they betray Jesus and hand him over to the Roman government. And it happens today, too. When, When Jesus comes near and his message is preached, hearts get revealed. Sometimes people get aggravated for, for seemingly no reason at the preaching of the gospel. I've seen this happen. I've heard of this happening. I have friends. I'm part of a cohort right now, a bunch of men who are are trying to bring life into churches and see the Lord bring life into churches. And some of them have gone to churches that have lost the gospel, and all they've done is begin to preach the gospel. And and one of them said recently, he said, when I got there, there were a hundred people, and I just began preaching Christ and the gospel from the scriptures. I preached that we are all sinners, and we all need Jesus to be saved, and that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. And he said, half of the church within a year was so angry with me that they left the church. And it was over this thing and that thing. He said, I didn't do anything other than preach the gospel. We see a similar thing happen when the morality of Jesus is preached. 
People will get so angry when purity is preached. And what's at the root of that? It's not the issue. It's, it's Jesus that we're angry with. And if you're wondering if that's you, am I one of those people who, who reacts and gets aggravated when the truth of Christ is preached? Let me, let me put some words of Jesus before you. Let's see how you respond to it. I'm going to quote Jesus here. He says at one point when he's asked about marriage, he says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And so, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and then the two will become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So, authoritative words from Jesus Christ saying there's male and there's female, right? God made it. And saying that marriage is when a man unites to his wife. And that only then should the two become flesh. And that because God has joined them, we should not separate them in divorce. Now, some will hear that, and it's what you already believe. And you're like, amen, preach it, preacher. And so I'm not talking to you. Others of you will say, okay, I disagree with that. But, you know, I, I, can, I can live with the fact that you said it. But some will hear that and be angry that it was said. And what's going on when that happens? The issue isn't with marriage. The issue isn't with manhood and womanhood. The issue is with the authority of Jesus to say that. Who gets to tell me what to do with my body, right? So, so much of today's gender debate and today's marriage debate and so much of what we are talking today about today, these days, comes down to does Jesus have the authority to tell me what reality is and tell me what to do. It's not the issue that's making people angry. It's the lordship of Jesus that's making people angry. And that is why the preaching of his word reveals the secret thoughts of many hearts and reveals the opposition that many have had to God for so long. So in that way and in many others, uh, the nearness of Christ, the preaching of Christ and his word brings out the secrets in our hearts. Now, if that's you, if you're aggravated with me for even saying that right now, the warning I want to give you is, is that that little bit of stirring in your heart and bringing out what is in your heart that's going on right now is just a picture of what will happen when you see Jesus in the flesh. Right, just hearing of him bothers and angers you. What will happen when the Lord comes and says, yes, I am the Lord? What will happen is our hearts will be exposed and revealed and all of our false religion will be laid bare before Jesus Christ and our kingdoms will be toppled. So if the message of Jesus angers you, if you oppose him and you oppose his ways, my call to you and the fact that the Lord would even give you this message this morning is a sign to you that he wants you to be saved. My call to you is to turn from all opposition to this Jesus Christ. Turn from clinging to, to our viewpoints and what we want, the way we want to look at the world. Come under the Lordship of Jesus and say, Lord, you define what's true. You define what I can do with my body, my heart, my soul. You alone can forgive me. And so, I give myself to you and I receive you. If you would come to Jesus in that way, he would have you and you can have him even right now. So we leave it here. On one hand, those of us longing for Jesus, when he comes, we will be filled with delight at his face. On the other hand, those of us that oppose him will have our hearts revealed and we will be 
toppled. And you must leave here this morning knowing which one you are. If you're a Christian, I, I want to ask, uh, one mark of Christian maturity is, is, do I long for Jesus to come back more than I did a year ago? Right? If, 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 if the Lord is in you and He's forming you, you're going to long for Him more and more with each passing year. Right? And you can look back on last year and say, was that desire as intense as it is now? Or if you've been following the Lord for 50 years, you might have to look back 10 years to get a good sense of scale. Is, is, that, is it the same way? Oh, that's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, is it the same or has it grown since, since then? Well, if so, the Lord's working in you and, and maturing you and increasing that desire. And when He comes, you'll find delight in His face. But yet, if your heart opposes Him, I call you, turn back, turn to Him now. When you lose your way along the way, you have Simeon and Anna now to point you back. Let's pray together.